I'm Red Robinson, and these are the Legends of Rock. Paul Revere was one of the best promoters in music. Here's a great story about the success of his first hit, Louie Louie. Well, what happened was we had a record called Louie Louie at that time, and it was on just a little private label up in the Northwest here. And it was like number one in all the cities around the Northwest, probably Vancouver, I don't remember yes. for sure, probably. Uh, Seattle, Portland, uh, all the way down to San Francisco, it was number one. And uh, so this... Uh, uh, disc jockey friend of ours who was kind of being a manager uh, also at the same time um, he he got approached because he was a program director at Kiss and Radio in Portland and so you know the the, the big uh, uh, promotion people out of, from all the record companies uh, come there all the time you know laying stuff on for you to play and so he tells the promotion man from Columbia Records he says uh, you know we got our number one record here and these guys are, are knocking them dead. And, and, you know, if Columbia had a brain in our heads, they would have So somehow or other, he goes and convinces uh, some Columbia executive in San, San Francisco that convinced somebody else, that convinced somebody else to take a shot and uh, pick up this record. Well, at first, there was no gamble. The record was already number one everywhere it was being played. So they knew Louie Louie was a natural. And uh, so uh, they just, we gave him the master. Didn't cost him nothing to cut it. You know, and we signed the world's worst record deal. You know, like, you know, after you sell two million records, they send you, you know, a box of Wheaties or something. You know, I mean, it was like nothing. I mean, it was the worst record deal you could ever sign. But we were hungry, you know, and we wanted to be on a big label. So we signed, you know, just the worst record deal. We, and we, uh, the record was already cut. The master was done. Everything was, we just handed it to him on a platter. And uh, they took it, but they, very reluctantly, they hated it. Uh, at that time, I think it was uh, uh, Mitch Miller was the head of A&R for Columbia Records, and he hated rock and roll. And he heard that song, and he went, that's a piece of garbage. How do we dare you know, blemish the Columbia record label name with this stupid piece of garbage? So with an attitude like that, we didn't have a lot of luck on our side. <laughs> so naturally, <laughs> after we had it uh, number one all in the Northwest, all before we even got on Columbia, and Columbia just didn't do nothing with the record at all. Then that's when another disc jockey uh, decided to take the Kingsman out of Portland, took, put him in the same recording studio we recorded Louis Louis in, and, uh, and they cut a version of it. And they made a deal with Wand Records, which was a very progressive R&B label. It was a small label, but it was a very uh, rock and roll, mostly a black label. And, uh, and they picked up the ball and carried it on. And so nationally, uh, the Kingsman uh, ended up getting the big hit off of it. But uh, always made me very angry because <laughs> we had it. It was in our hand. I so I've spent the last 25 years trying to get even. <laughs> I think that's what gives me my incentive to keep rocking. <laughs> but, you know, your timing has been so beautiful in show business too, Paul. Not only the hard work that you put out, because I know that, but uh, taking Richard Berry's song, which was never anything, and making it a hit, and then having the Kingsman Kings, uh, take it. That's good. I like it when you've stumbled on the I name. stumbled on Kingsman. Words are my it. business. I love it. But you, uh, you also were an innovator. You had a lot of people uh, with you, some great talent, the Mark Lindsay's, the Freddie Wellers. Yeah. Uh, where did you find these people? I always keep my eye peeled. Uh, Raiders are uh, uh, hard to find because uh, they gotta, got to get in these costumes, you know. So therefore, you know, they've they got to be under 300 pounds and more than 100 pounds. So, you know, that limits you right there. And um, also... They gotta have a sense of humor or they could never work with me because I never take anything serious. And if anybody starts taking things serious, I punch them out. Uh, because, you know, this, everybody takes music so serious, it makes me barf. It's like, <laughs> so many musicians think they have such, 
heavy statements to make. Yes. Shut up. Okay, just play the music. Okay. So that's my attitude. <laughs> it's like, you but know. you found some great people. Oh, yeah. No, I always look for uh, guys that, that uh, have fun uh, and are talented. They got to be talented because you have to be able to play good while standing on your head to be in my band. <laughs> so that el eliminates a lot of people right there. But uh, yeah, I've been very lucky. I always keep my eye peeled, though. Whenever I hear of a band that's, that's really hot in an area, I go and take a look at them and see if there's a crazy one among them. And if there is, you know, then I think, well, that might be Raider material, so I just kind of mark that off. And, and uh, so if anything comes up, you know, which you never know, no. somebody decides to take off on their own, and what are you gonna do? Nothing. Wish them well, and there you go. And so that's uh, what happens, and then I have to replace them. But it doesn't happen anymore. That's only when they're young and they're, uh, you know, new. Yeah, well, they think that, you know, that everything that they've ever wanted is gonna happen if they just get out there and do it. And sometimes it does. But as you get older, you can't get rid of a raider. You gotta beat them up and then they don't even wanna go because they like, they like the security of being in a group that refuses to go away. Are well, we know? talking about Paul Revere and the Raiders or the Oakland Raiders? I'm trying to... <laughs> it's about the same. We dress a little weirder, but uh, it's, it's, <laughs> you gotta be in shape in either, in either organization. But uh, yeah, the, the uh, guys I got with me now has been with me about, uh, some of them, 14 years. Uh, I, I mean, they long time, but uh, they were very young when I hired him, so I'm getting a lot of mileage out of these guys. I was going to say, your timing was also right in another way, too. Do you not think that where the action is with Dick Clark when you were regulars on there was helpful for the career, too? Oh, that was it. That was, I mean, it, that was the MTV of its time. Uh, it, was, uh, it was the only place where you could see a rock and roll artist uh, on television, because you know, a lot of times people would have a hit record and you wonder, well, what do they look like, you know? Well, you turn on uh, where the action is. We were on every afternoon. Right. And we, all of our guests were always people that was having top hit records. And we were on the show every day. And with that kind of exposure, you cannot go wrong unless you are the world's worst act. You yeah. know, I mean, you'd have to be pretty bad not to draw some fan mail if you're on network television, you know, every day. So uh, that's, that's a natural. I mean, you know, so... You know, without the TV show, I don't know that whether, whether, whether we'd ever made it or not because that's, uh, who knows? You know, this business is so much luck. I, know. I mean, anybody that says that it's anything other than luck is a fool. They're lying. They're kidding themselves. They're flattering their, their, their talent. There's a lot of talented groups out there that will never make it. And it's sad. I see so many really good groups that will never make it. Yeah. And I see terrible groups that accidentally did make it. So there's, there's, <laughs> there's not a lot of justice in the world, except in the long run, the bad groups usually die off. <laughs> but you know, the other thing about that timing too is that America was looking for a group to compete with the English invasion. Hey, and, you and were here I was, in a three-cornered hat, and the uh, red, white, and blue. Yeah, we were a natural, and a name like Parver and the Raiders. What the hey? I was in the right place at the right time, with the right name, with the right look, with the right costume, on the right TV show. And, and we just happened to have uh, the right records that we recorded at the time. So a lot of right things happen. But that's what it takes to uh, really... Well, tell them what your real name is. That's it. Paul Rivera. I mean, I wouldn't think of anything that exactly. stupid on my own. Um, <laughs> I used to think, why me? You know, all, ever since I was a little kid, you know, was, everybody walked up to me and was like, where's your horse? I mean, everybody thought they said it first. You know, old men would walk up to me. I was five years old. Paul Rivera, where's your horse? Pow! And I was like, nobody was original. I was always the same line. So it gave me a sense of humor after a while because, you know, you can't beat up everybody. So, uh, so <laughs> I learned to laugh and have fun. And I got even in the long run. So uh, I have a, 
I have a good time. My, my dad's 90 and my mom's 87. And uh, so they've lived long enough to see uh, the, the dirty trick they played on me uh, come around. And, uh, and now I'm still- At work. I, hey, and I'm feeding them now in, the, in their old age and they appreciate it. <laughs> so. and you, you obviously appreciate them too, Paul. Oh, they're great, they're great. Where are they living, in Oregon still? No, they live in, they live in Idaho. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, Pop is a George Burns lookalike. That's, that's where I get my sense of humor. He is the funniest man in the world. He, is, he should have been a rock band leader. This guy, is, he's Spike Jones. He's the original Spike Jones, this guy. He is too funny. But uh, Pop's 90 years old, and he's still, everything's a one-liner with him. One thing you said, Paul, you said, you know, the musicians who take themselves too seriously. I, I agree with you. That's my philosophy, too. But you did make a statement in the song Indian Reservation, written by John D. Laudermilk, right. who himself is a part Indian. Right. Why that particular song? Because it, it gets to everybody. It's beautiful. I, I would love to, to come up with uh, some kind of a baloney story telling you of what a, a, a great idea I had to record this song. I had nothing to do with it. I, I, <laughs> you're I, I could lie, and I could really look, come out looking like a like a hero with this. But actually, we were in the studio recording an album, and uh, of just straight ahead rock and roll. And this was in the late, uh, well, actually, early '70s. Yep. And you know, everything really got heavy in the late '60s. You know, well, we were a fun, crazy band in the mid '60s. And then as the late '60s came on, everybody got very. It was a downer time. I mean, everybody was like, uh, you know, the Vietnam thing, and and and. Every band was stoned out of their mind, and the kids were all smoking tennis shoes and sitting in the park, and I don't know what they were all Anyway, everybody was weird, man. It was like it was a bizarre time, and nobody wanted to laugh. Everybody just wanted to sit around and go, wow, it's heavy, man. It's heavy. I didn't want to be heavy. I just wanted to have fun. And I was like, it wasn't cool to have fun. Yeah. And I refused not to have fun. So that meant we were kind of uh, uh, the over-the-hill gang in the late 60s. We were not really considered hip and cool because we wore funny suits and, uh, and we stood on our head and played rock and roll and made, joke, made jokes and, uh, and, you know, just had fun. But it was like everybody was taking everything so serious and everything was so heavy. It's like, you can't just be one way all the time. You, there's gotta be a time of the day where you, you laugh, you know? Right. Well, if, if, if you feel like it, hey, I'll, I'll be there. So that was my mission in life was to lighten things up. And, uh, but people didn't, the young people didn't really want to hear about it. And so we were having a hard time having hits in the late 60s. We, I mean, we'd have one every once in a while. But it was like a very heavy time period. And when we'd go in the studio, we would, we would cut some good, you know, what I thought was good, meaty, heavy rock and roll songs. But it was never accepted because it was like, we've always thrown in the category of the monkeys. And it was like, uh, which I never put us in that category because no. the monkeys no. was, uh, got nothing against them, but they were four actors that was thrown into a, uh, a, a musical series. A musical comedy television series. Had nothing to do with uh, being musicians. I mean, they were, they were actors acting like a group. And people believed they were, and, and they had hits. And great, and now they're out doing it again. That's, I, it's unbelievable. But anyway, there was a time period where the monkeys were just considered uh, just the, the world's most lightweight human beings. And we were thrown in that category of because we were television personality types. And so... Uh, uh, we was having a hard time there. And so we was cutting this album and this uh, A&R guy by the name of Jack Gold, yes. he, he came in with this song. And we were in the studio and he came in and he says, I want you guys to listen to this song. So we listened to the song and, uh, and I'm going, yeah, so? Because it didn't sound like Parvin Raiders to me. And uh, he says, I think you guys should cut this song. And I says, why? And he says, I think it's a hit. I says, that's good enough for reason for me. You know, it doesn't matter what I think. If you think it's a hit, right. maybe it's a hit. 
And the worst thing that could happen is you're wrong and it's your money because he worked for Columbia Records. So uh, we cut the song and, and we enjoyed cutting it because when we got into it, we enjoyed what the song had to say and how to, uh, and how to give it you know, the feeling. And, and uh, it was an interesting song. It was the kind of song you either loved it or you hated it. Right. It was nothing in between. But so was Louie Louie. It was the kind of song, it was a piece of crap, but either you loved it or you hated it. And Indian Reservation was the extreme opposite, but it was the same situation. I knew it was either going to be a number one record or a number 200 with an anchor. It wasn't going to be anything in between. And it turned out it was a, a number one record. But it was like pulling teeth. When we put the record out, nobody would play it. Uh, people would like put it on and they go, that isn't Parvin the Raiders. It doesn't sound like Parvin the Raiders. And if you didn't sound like Parvin the Raiders, then we didn't want it. And so they'd throw it in the trash. Because it's like the poor Beach Boys. Everything, they can't do anything but what they do because they're stuck doing, yeah. you know, little surfing songs because, and if they tried to do anything else, people would get mad. It's like, you ain't supposed to do that. You're supposed to sing about Deuce Coops. And uh, so you're stuck in a category sometimes and you can't get out of it. Right. But, uh, and that's what was happening with us. People wanted us to sound like, uh, everything to sound like just like me or Good Thing or Kicks or Hunger or something. I mean. They knew what we were supposed to sound like in their mind. Right. That's not necessarily what we sound like, but it's what they think we sound like. I mean, I'm talking program perception. directors. You're talking perception. Program directors, yeah. music directors, the kind of people that hold your career in their hands and enjoy manipulating or throwing it away or doing, they do some numbers. So uh, the song came out and it was immediately 187 with an anchor. I mean, nobody would play it. Nobody wanted it. And I went, I don't believe it. So I went to a couple of stations that I personally knew the music director and why not, who was not uh, opinionated of, of any way, shape, or form. And they had this thing called the Battle of the, of the Bands, uh, Battle something or whatever. Every yeah. night at seven o'clock, they would take three new records and play them against each other, and whoever won played against two new records the next night, and it kept, and you know, so on and so on and so on. Uh, and it would go on for like a week, and then and if it if a song won all the way down the line for a week, they would put it on the automatic playlist, right. and they'd play it constantly. And I thought, hey, that's fair. I mean, at least give me a shot. And he says, what do you want to do? And I says, put this on the radio. And this is in my hometown in Idaho, and it was in Boise, Idaho. And Boise, even though it's my hometown, it's just a typical town. I mean, it's no different than Wichita, Kansas. I mean, right. it's just a town. It's got a college. It's got old people, little people, young people, all kinds of people, and, uh, and nobody really cares whether Paul Revere is from there or not. And most people that live there don't even know it, and that's fine with me. But I said, just in case, I don't want my relatives calling in and throwing off the count, you know? Because they'll do that, you know? Yeah, sure. You know, your mother will call 65 times. That record's great, you know? And I said, no, we don't want to do that. So what you got to do is, I says, play the song, but do not say who it's by. You can say what you want about the other songs, but don't say who it's by. Just say, this is a new song, what do you think, blah, 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 and do not say who it's by. And I said, just overlook it. Yeah. Just don't, don't go out of your way to say you, why you're not doing it, because then they start thinking, well, what's going on there? Just overlook saying who it's by. And so he did that, and it, it won, hands down, the, the, night, the first night, and it was against, uh, oh, I mean, uh, uh, groups like uh, the Eagles, and I can't remember who it was all against. Anyway, it was sure. like, I mean, heavy-duty groups that were having number one records, and they ran our song uh, against him, and we won. And I went, hey, that's great. I mean, this is legit. I went back there. He says, no. I said, there was no, no little girls, no relative types. It was, I mean, obviously, this, this record made it on its own. And I said, well, let's, let's see what happens again. He said, fine. So I monitored it. I would listen to the radio every night as they ran it against other records for like a week. Right. And it won all the way down the line. And so finally, they put it on the playlist, 
And within like about three weeks, it went to number one. Well, once it was on the playlist, right. then, they, then they announced that it was Parvin Raiders. And it went to number one. And uh, he says, I don't think that it's doing this because you're from here. He says, I think this is, he says, because we're getting requests all ages, older people, young people. Uh, it's some, it's some, for some reason, it's kind of a haunting kind of a song. And people remember it and, uh, and they're requesting it. And I went, this is great. And I went to number one. And so I call up Columbia Records in New York and I says, I'm telling you we've got a number one record. And they says, well, I think we do, but we can't get airplay. And I says, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. I said, uh, I'm gonna go on a, this is when Easy Rider had just come out, the movie. Yep. And I'm a bike freak. I got five motorcycles for dirt bike ride and then I got a big nasty chopper that I ride on the streets. And uh, Easy Rider had just come out. And everybody was kind of tuned in to these nasty looking weird bikes that come out of California. And this friend of mine and myself each had these kind of bikes and we were looking to ride, we were actually gonna ride all the way through Mexico down to the canal and back. And then at that point, they passed a law in Mexico not to let any freaky, weird, long-haired uh, guys on motorcycles across the border because they was loading up their saddlebags with some kind of weird stuff. Uh -huh. And uh, so, they, so they stopped the freaks from coming across the border. And at the time, I didn't look like your basic insurance salesman, so I knew I wouldn't get across the border. And these bikes were, you know, bizarre looking. So we had to forget about that, the ride we were gonna take. So we decided, uh, well, let's just go for a ride and try to stay, stay south and go like towards Florida and then backtrack. Cause we just love to write. Right. And I thought this would be great. I could stop at radio stations, have a box of records on my back, and I could uh, you know, ride my bike through the front door, terrorize the uh, program director and say, play this or I'll you know, spin my tires on your face. Ride the uh, hog through the lobby. Exactly. And it turned out it was a great promotion because first of all, people who had had hit records that were in a certain category, they didn't bother to come around to radio stations personally and hype their new records. I mean, that was done by a promotion guy. But, uh, and because we'd been around long enough that we were semi-legends, I guess, that I could get away with things that the average person couldn't. So when I got in, when I was in the lobby, you know, I would get in to see the boss quicker than the promotion guys because, first of all, I had a motorcycle in the lobby, which is always interesting. So uh, it, it turned out a, a funny thing because they'd put me on the air and we would do some interviews and I would do some bizarre things on the air. And then I would, you know, I, I would, force these guys, I would shame them into playing my new record. Right. And then the, the phones would light up immediately, you know, and it was like, it would like, they would be surprised. They would be surprised at the, that kind of reaction. And then I would monitor them. And then when I'd leave town, I'd call them back the next day, the next day, the next day. I mean, as I was traveling, I kept, I'd sit on the phone and I'd, I'd backlog where I'd been. And I'd keep on these guys' tails so that nobody just, you know, when I walked right. out the door, they threw out the, the, the record, you know, because I told them, I'd be back, I will spin my tires on your face. So, uh, you know, and I'd check on them. And so I'd tell them, hey, I was listening, you didn't play the record today, you know, and I would lie and, they, and I would make them scared. And, uh, it, but we, they would put me on the radio and we would jive and I got a lot of airplay just by doing bizarre things. And, but the record had it, it had what it took. And so on its own, it became uh, a, a record. Everywhere we went, it got on the charts. By the end, now we took off in the spring. It was like, the record come out like in about November, December. And I, like I said, it was an, with an anchor, nobody played it. And it was about April that I decided to go on this trip. And, uh, and then the middle of July, when Columbia Records had their, their annual record convention, the week of the convention, our record was number one on Billboard, right. Cashbox, right across the board, it was the number one record in the country. And it sold a million on the way up, sold a million while it was number one, and sold a million on the way down. And I think the reason it sold so many records is because it was on the charts for eternity. Because it, it just very, it didn't go zoom, right. zoom. It was, like, it was like pulling teeth, you know, all the way. And every time they would get higher on the charts, a lot of the earlier stations that had played it and quit playing it, started playing it again because it got high on the national charts 
and I'm still living off of that last hit. <laughs> Paul, <laughs> ah, good, for you, good for you. One last thing. Yes. How does it feel? Don't, whatever you do, no, no. don't ask me to tell you a story because I'll tell you one. No, I love the story. I mean, <laughs> it's not in a film. Yeah, it's okay. 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 Uh, out of all of the things happening uh, today, how does it make you feel to come out in front of a crowd uh, in the 80s and have them respond to the music just like they did, and in some cases more so than they did in the 60s? It's, Paul Revere it, it's totally mind-blowing. I can't believe it. Every night we run out on stage there, I figure the old farmers will come out uh, that are my age, you know, that they want to relive the, their past, you know, and see if, if the old man of rock and roll can still do his silly steps without breaking a knee. And so I know they're going to be out there. But there's a whole bunch of, you know, generations that, uh, younger generations that are out there too. I mean, clear down to little kids. Little kids like us because we look like a cartoon to them. You know, we look like the Flintstones on acid or something. And, uh, and uh, colonial Flintstones. So uh, then you got the teenagers who, who just think we're kind of cool. We're real cool. You know what? We're cool. And they just think we're weird, far out, and they think that's funny, and so they like that. And uh, then you got, as it progresses through the years, everybody has a reason they're out there. <laughs> None of them a good reason, but it doesn't matter, they're out there. And, uh, but it must make you feel good, Paul. Oh, it does. Huh? It's, it's great. It's fun, because we're going out there, and here I am, after all these years, standing on my head and stealing money still. And uh, it's an amazing thing. Dean Torrance told me he gets more fun out of doing shows and doesn't care if he ever has a record contract oh, again. Well, there's no pressure now. You know, it's like, you know, once you're a legend or you read somewhere you are, you know, it makes you feel good. So what's there to prove? You know, you had your hits, you got a wall full of gold records and you did all the things there is to do. And now you're just having fun. But to sure. tell you the truth, I would like another hit. <laughs> we'll see what we can do for it. Okay. Paul, thank you. All right. You're a happy man. Thank you, Red. Meet me at the home of the legends, redrobinson.com.